UX Podcast Episode 250. I'm James. And I'm Pat. And this is UX Podcast, balancing business, technology, and people every other week for 250 episodes and almost 10 years, with listeners in 197 countries and territories from Liechtenstein to Nepal. Thank you for hanging with us and our guests for the past 250 episodes. And whether you have listened to just a handful of episodes or all 250, then we're happy that you're with us and hope that you've found episodes that are useful for you and your work. Anna Rosling Rönlund is a Swedish designer who rose to fame with her work on Trendalyzer, interactive software for visualizing statistical information, which was later sold to Google. As a co-founder of the Gapminder Foundation, she has continued to work alongside her husband Ola and her late father-in-law Hans Rosling to further explain complex facts about the world in a more accessible way. In 2017, she spoke at the TED conference where she explained the power of data visualization. In 2017, she also collaborated with Hans and Ola on the global bestseller Factfulness, of which Bill Gates said, one of the most important books I've ever read, an indispensable guide to thinking clearly about the world. In 2016, she announced Dollar Street, a website that portrays how people of varying cultures and incomes live around the world on a virtual street of homes. UX designer is the role closest to Anna's heart. And what better way to celebrate episode 250 of UX podcast in these tumultuous times of 2020 than to invite Anna on the show to inspire us about how we can as designers help the world become more factful. Hang around after our chat to Anna for our post-interview reflections. So Anna, when I was doing a little bit of research before um, this interview, um, I was looking a bit at the, the Wikipedia pages about you. And what struck me was you're, you're classed or called um, system developer, photographer, designer, vice president for design and usability. There was a lot of different terms and things. But how do you describe yourself and what you do? Uh, yeah, I think one of the reasons there are so many titles is because we have run our own business. So I have a, more or less switched titles depending on what makes most sense <laughs> for what we're doing at the moment. Um, no, but I, I think there is always one thing I do, and that is that we try, I mean, together with uh, with Ola, we try to, which is my husband and colleague since uh, several years, um, we are fascinated by how we can actually make the world easier to understand to people. And we have been doing, um, focused mainly on, on doing visual um, explanations of pretty complex stuff. But we have changed the ways we've do, been doing that over, over the years. So in some periods, it has been more useful for me to be a VP. And sometimes in some settings, it has been more useful for me to be a photographer, which I am. <laughs> and it has sometimes I have been more of a, a UX designer. Um, you know, so it, it has shifted. And I would say that I, I, I do pretty much 
a little bit of everything uh, in the projects we do. So it, it is a little bit uh, vague what would be the main term. But I what, what I've done all the time is, is being uh, fascinated by how complicated, important stuff about the world development could be communicated to normal people without a, a special interest in a way that they understand that is instant and, and uh, meaningful to them. I think the um, I think the one I think those of us who who do have UX or have, have ended up with UX in our our titles or how we describe ourselves probably have a very similar story that we get we get involved in so many pies our fingers are all over the place and the titles vary a lot depending on where you where you end up just now. But but yeah but I but I I would say that UX is probably the the title that is closest to my heart which is. Uh, sort of trying to, to, to make sense of a lot of things for people. It's almost like you're being the mediator between different types of people and different roles and helping people understand each other. Yes, and I, I think that is an extremely interesting uh, part of the problem solving. And I think, I, I would say like 10, I don't know if you agree, but 10 to 10 or 15 years ago, I think a lot of people were still not really familiar with what 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 the the role meant but i would say now with all the apps you get in the app stores <laughs> on your phone i think more and more people start to realize that information has to be packaged and entertainment as well in 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 different ways so i think i think people have have an easier task nowadays to understand sort of what it is <laughs> I think definitely the the fact that we've in the well ten years ago when everyone started to, or a lot more people started to have um, interfaces in their pockets through mobile phones, then that of course created I think a new relationship for the everyday person and and the importance of having something that was well thought through and communicated or designed for their for their needs. Yeah, and I, I so so I think if someone would have. Um, uh, would have wanting to understand what I was doing on a regular basis, I think they would have a harder time understanding that uh, 10 years back than today. That's a good point. Talking about um, explaining, one thing that you notice when you, when you read factfulness, um, that there are quite a few phrases that come up, factfulness itself, um, but also things like possibilist, terms which are coined by... By you, Ola, and um, um, and Hans. Yes. Do you want to explain them a little bit? <laughs> um, <laughs> I I think I could start by by just saying that what we have tried to do in the book Factfulness was actually trying to explain the world uh, with words that we thought were the best words to explain everything with, <laughs> rather yeah. than using the words that was already there. And and one of the main things is to get rid of the sort of academic tone that you usually have as soon as it becomes something serious, a serious topic, or you know, <laughs> mm. trying to explain science in a in a way that is understandable. So factfulness is a is a term that uh, Ulla actually coined, and and it's tr- trying to be factful. I mean, it's 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 a uh, playing with the word uh, mindfulness, <laughs> be it factfulness. 
So, um, and, and he, he actually, uh, he and he got, got that into his brain when we were struggling early on in the, actually before writing the book, but when we realized we would probably need to write a book, uh, and we were struggling with what we wanted people to, to do. I mean, one thing is trying, is trying to get the information into their brain. And another is to find ways, help them to actually make sense of the information and have it stick. So we thought quite a lot about um, a big portion of it is actually more around uh, being more aware of yourself and your thought processes and how they lead you wrong rather than uh, just filling the brain with facts, which you, which you also need to do. But, but the main challenge that we have been fighting for several years is that we realized that people thought that they knew what the world was like around them. But when you, we started testing and when we did that, we realized that they were usually wrong and how do you have someone actually learn about something they think that they already know? <laughs> mm, so, yeah. so, so we were thinking quite a lot about that process and then driving out to our, uh, we, we have a small cottage uh, out uh, at Värmdö, uh, uh, outside of Djurenäset, uh, which is uh, like a conference Place. And they, when, when Ola was driving, he saw they had huge signs about you could go on a mindfulness weekend or something. And then he, he was like driving, thinking about being factful. Uh, how, how can people be factful? And then he saw the word mindfulness and then suddenly he just sort of built them together and was like, hey, <laughs> it's fact, factfulness must be the term that we're looking for. So that was basically how that term how 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 that got into our uh phrasing you could say and and being a possibilist is more about um all the time you hear people being either um you know optimist or pessimist about the future or the now uh, even the present and and that that term grew out of a frustration that Hans had felt for quite a time that he was a bit irritated that if you try to show people that the world has improved in several ways, they easily say to you like, ah, oh, but you're one of those optimists. While it's just showing uh, some of the trends has actually been positive because in most people's minds, they think of the world in a, in a very uh, dystopic and negative way. So, it's it's all about trying to be um, led by facts here as well, by actually being uh, humble and, and actually check the data and see that humanity has achieved quite a lot over the years. Uh, if you look especially in the health and education and economy sectors, you can see a lot of positive things has happened that we usually tend to forget about because we focus so much on everything that goes bad, like the environment, for instance. So it's, it's like trying to be humble and, and be guided by, by the facts that is actually out there and, and be positive that change, positive change can happen, but it will not automatically happen. And it's sort of 
staying and be data-driven in between the optimist and pessimist kind of um, yeah, camps. Mm. I, I really, I mean, I, I like both terms, but the pos- possibilist, that did actually ring, a, a ring quite a good term with me because I, I often would say I'm a realist. And I've thought about during the years how realism does have a little bit negative um, aspect of that as well. And, but possibilist does actually capture that, that aspirational side of things and curious side of things without losing the connection to the, the, the reality of, that we live in. Yeah, exactly. I mean, think it is possible that we can change things into the future, most likely in many areas, but it's not a necessity that it will happen by itself. And some areas we might have a hard time solving or even fail solving. So it's not, I, I think that is the importance uh, to not be too to, um, uh, naive thinking that everything will work by itself, because of course it will not. But we have achieved quite a lot over the years. I love this because what you're essentially doing is not, again, you're learning that people don't really know that they don't know much about the world, but you're not telling the, the fact, you're actually helping them become, become more resilient towards reading facts from others and understanding how to interpret that. And perhaps, as you said, being able to question your own view of the world. I mean, that's really impressive because I think you have really managed to help people consume this information in a fun and entertaining way, as you were talking about before, making it something that you kind of wanted to and want to dive into and and have fun with. And you, you have people talking over dinners about these ideas because it's just enjoyable. Uh, so, I mean, kudos to that, to that because that's been a really good job you've done. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, we have been struggling quite hard and we, I, I have to say, we don't feel that we have succeeded, but we have managed uh, in bits and pieces here and there to <laughs> to get get the, the message through. But I, yeah, the the whole work we do, I think, is driven out of a, a frustration in a way that, you know, <laughs> that it feels like, I mean, it's important in a democracy that people are actually, you know, make good choices that are informed. And if they're going to make good in, and informed choices, it's pretty good to have the basic facts somewhat right. And to do that, you need to be aware of how your brain will fool you to think that you have a lot of facts that might be uh, delusions or totally wrong without you even knowing it. I mean, and it's, I think the interesting part is it's not about uh, intelligence because when we have tested highly intelligent and highly capable people in certain groups, we see, I mean, we see the exact same pattern as we see when we test more normal people, <laughs> so to say. And, and, so, so it's it's all about how we uh, we as humans, you know, the species, how we process information. And I think in many ways you could say that we're not totally data literate yet. It's a pretty new thing that we have all this data around us, and now we have to teach ourselves and our brains to process the information in a reasonable, not too time consuming way. 
Sorry, I was, I was going to say that I think this this year in particular, with um, with the pandemic, it, it it feels like it's the it's been the year of the visualization. You might say it's the year of COVID, but it, it's the year of the visualization. I don't think I've ever seen so many uh, variations of how you visualize visualize data as we've we've seen this year. Which, of course, I think gives the um, appearance of being fact based. When it comes to that data, we we do have the problem that it's the pandemic is, is so new and we know so little about it, and we have a very scattered data so far. So I mean, you could still think about what about the data quality of the things that gets visualized, or is it really giving the right picture? That that I think is a very interesting part of the problem, because if mm. you if you think about the data that we have been working with. Uh, usually we work with sort of the boring <laughs> the boring statistics that that uh, the big organizations have been collecting for maybe you know 50 or 30 or 70 years or so and they they do the same uh data uh gathering on a yearly or every 3 years or something in all countries and compile it to to data sets that no one sees more or less in within the big organizations and what we have been doing is to basically try to make that data come to life or at least the parts that the science community usually agrees on as sort of the you know the a little bit dull background information that that is non not very disputed while when when uh covid comes now you have a completely new thing with a lot of different um, data teams all over the world gathering these uh, fractions of data. And we start to visualize. And I, I agree, it's very interesting to see all these visualizations. But in many cases, I think we are, uh, the data is, is not as mature. So I think it will be interesting to see when we have a bigger picture how we would best describe the trends and the uh, courses and you know all that isn't this the danger of of, of the data visualization i mean one graph which is more predictive and one graph which is based on historic data they can look the same and appear all equally factful if you will but they but the one can be deceitful and this is what you usually say about statistics statistics damn lies uh, i mean visualizations are in that area as well in that it some things can seem so simple to understand when it's visualized and that can be helpful, but it can also be extremely dangerous, I think. Yeah, and I, th- I think that is, that is the interesting part with doing visualizations that people, people uh, believe in, that it's easily a field where the one who is most talented in making beautiful visualizations uh, will win people's understanding of a whole field. Because even if you have a lot of scientists making extremely well-performed uh, studies, I mean, they are very few people out there that would actually consume those studies seriously, you know. (laughs) So if someone managed to do a a very uh, catchy uh, visualization that might be wrong, it can be very hard to uh, get rid of that understanding from people's minds. 
So yeah, so so it becomes kind of factfulness versus fakefulness, and and like knowing how do you how do you know when to be humble and when to, or when to, when to challenge something presented as a fact and when to be open to new information. It's um, yeah, and I I think I think actually that I think that is one of the biggest challenges for humanity for the coming maybe twenty thirty years to figure out how we can teach uh, data literacy in a meaningful realistic way uh, in classrooms all over the world so that students get a, a sort of a basic uh, ability to read data in a reasonable way, because I think that will be the one of the key, um, key knowledges to actually have to, to be successful in, in, in many areas, including, you know, private life, how you choose and what you go for and, you know, not losing everything you own on the lottery or <laughs> what it, whatever it can be. I, I completely agree with you. I mean, when I'm, I, I teach about um, UX and analytics um, uh, on a regular basis, and um, the most important thing I teach people in that class is splitting things up, going down beneath the surface, because you, you, you lose so much if you just look at the, the over, the, the, the big picture and don't understand what lies underneath the surface. Yes. Yeah, and it's, it's a tricky thing. I, I totally agree. Yeah. I think when it comes to methodology, it's interesting. Uh, in one case, you may have research that you found that is historic, whereas you want to visualize something that I know you've been doing with, uh, for example, Dollar Street, and you make use of other people to help you visualize in that you're not the only one doing it, but people who are actually immersed in that situation that you want to visualize are the people who are also contributing. Tell us a bit about how that methodology worked for you. Now, so so I would say Dollar Street is uh, is also grown out of a frustration that very often when we um, and and it started from my own frustration actually because we started uh, in in Gapminder to visualize uh, time series data where we were comparing um, looking at how how countries were performing in different indicators over time and. Suddenly, for the first time, I, I thought that I could understand uh, the, the big trends in a way that was wonderful. But, we, but as we very often were looking at GDP per capita as one of the indicators, I had a pretty hard time actually grasping what those numbers would mean in everyday life. You know, when you, when, when you, see, when you see proportions, but you get no images in your head. So uh, as I was studying to become a photographer at that point, uh, it, it was a very obvious way to go to think that, hey, what if we start uh, adding photos from people's lives or everyday life into the data so we can actually sort of map the big, uh, the, the big generic country trends with some sort of an everyday life kind of context? What what does it look like if you live on $1 a day uh, versus if you live on $10 a day or $100 a day? Then the, also the idea that a lot of people actually have a hard time. Uh, as soon as they see statistics and they see charts and graphs, a lot of people actually get uh, negative and don't, don't want to look because they don't consider themselves being data people or interested in stats or maths or so on. 
So we thought about, is there a way where we can be more instant and find a way of communicating to normal people and sort of trick the brain not to think about the economy axis by, <laughs> but anyway, use it. So then we created the dollar street, which is basically an economy axis, you know, from poor to rich. And then we, we have sent out photographers to visit homes on all different income levels all over the world. And we systematically take photos in their homes to look at everyday items like uh, stoves, toilets, beds and so forth to, to sort of get an overview of the basic human uh, home functions that we do have in all homes independently of income level. I mean, all of us ne need to solve hygiene and food and sleep. Uh, and it will, of course, vary depending on the income level we are at. So we, we were interested in trying to to see the not only the the gradual change from being absolutely in, in like extreme poverty and all the way up to being you know normally wealthy like a a typical swede i mean of course we would love to have a, a super rich home as well but at least we're going to to the corner where <laughs> where we uh the sort of the the high-income country, what does life look like for a middle or high-income person in that context, so that you can get the overall uh, view of the world and look at not only the difference within the world, but also within countries. So we try to do, I mean, it's an ongoing project. And nowadays, now I think we have 450 homes in 65 countries or something. And we're, we're actually, we have a huge matrix of the homes we would actually need to fulfill to make Dollar Street not only representative for life on the different income levels in general, but also for life within countries. So it's, it's a pretty big uh, statistical task and it's a bit, a big, <laughs> a bit, Basically, the project is huge in that sense, and we're just early on, and we move on slowly, stepwise, but we do fill the matrix little by little. So the whole idea, I mean, in the in the ideal world, we would have, within a few years, a pretty good coverage to see life on different income levels within countries and also all over the world as a whole. And then we're hoping that we could actually find a find a way where we could like every, let's say every 10 years or every 20 years, go back to the same GPS coordinates and see what has happened on that play, that spot. That would be a dream scenario to sort of have this as a baseline and make it into an history project. But I mean, we'll see how that goes because it's, <laughs> we're a small nonprofit. So things moves not as rapidly that we would sometimes prefer. <laughs> I think that'd be wonderful to achieve. I was thinking just now as well about how um, even from, if your UX or your design team is working maybe internationally, that Dollar Street could even be used as, as inspiration or understanding about how other countries are. You know, if you're building a product, you're pricing a product, you're trying to understand, get a feeling for how life is somewhere else, then Dollar Street can maybe help you with research um, 
um, or understanding. And I mean, uh, exactly. And and it, it can be used also in the, I mean, in, in corporates in general, if you're looking at different markets, it's a pretty useful thing because quite often we we have we have ideas about the world and very often they are not as statistically relevant because when we have been traveling to a country for instance we have a sense that we know what life is like there but if we i mean if we're realistic and think about what places we were visiting most likely we haven't seen a representative lives but we see the the lives that are along our like tourist or business travel uh, route, which is something different. Trying to make the everyday life uh, visible that you seldom see elsewhere. Everything that doesn't fit the news because it's too... I mean, those families we've, we have visited are much more common than the ones we see in the news, but we seldom see them because, of course, people want to hear about everything dramatic and fantastic that happens. And Dollar Street is just, you know, plain everyday lives, which is pretty amazing, I think. So you can basically stay at home uh, without traveling and still explore everyday life in a lot of different other places. I understand, Anna, that um, at Gapminder, you've got um, a set of design principles. (laughs) what are they <laughs> oh they are also changing so <laughs> that that sounds good though that they don't stand still because that's like updating your um your your knowledge and what you believe in things yeah it's... no but but I, you could say that the overarching idea is always to get rid of everything that distracts from the core information trying to keep it simple plain and explain things stepwise in normal language rather than using academic lingo and usually take people through it step by step. I would say that would be the core thing. And then we try to stick to uh, a static set of uh, coloring and iconography so that we, you could, with the idea that you can, you can learn them once and then you can immediately uh, recognize them. For instance, we have uh, divided the world into four regions rather than five or six or seven or whatever regions different <laughs> different organizations use, and we color them. Uh, in, we we usually color them uh, in the same colors uh, every single time, so that you it becomes more of a language. So we try to do things like that. Right. Yeah, yeah. So consistency is um, that's something that comes up a lot in our circles about whether you should be consistent or, or if you should expect knowledge to be already existing in um, people that are receiving it. And something that also, I mean, when you say step by step, for me that really resonates because it's if, for me it feels like you're acknowledging throughout this interview you're acknowledging uh, that it takes time, change takes time, and you need mm-hmm. to be able to have people along with you instead of rushing ahead. Yes, and and I think that is probably the thing that that people do, uh, the the most common mistake that uh, you can see during lectures and conferences all the time, that you have someone who is extremely knowledgeable, who stands in front of an audience and talks 
uh, about something while they have a presentation behind them showing a snapshot of something different, often with very lo a lot of text and with small fonts. Or they can have the other, uh, the, the other way of doing the presentations behind them while they are talking, which is more like a, it looks like a commercial for soap or something, you know. They have this PR agency that had given them those perfectly looking video animating beautiful slides and you have no clue why you're why you're seeing them you know people are running on beaches happy you know you have all this like <laughs> corporate uh look to it where it's like perfect but they say nothing i i, I think everything is about you should uh, take time and try to explain things stepwise if it is something important and worth explaining <laughs> and you have to explain you have to to give up on all your favorite details because people will not spend that energy following you so you have to you know cut the crap and go to the basics in a way right and i think our our, our biggest challenge has been we want to communicate things people are not interested in to The, the people that are the least interested, right? The ones who are not interested in global development at all, we want to give them a glimpse or give them the, the big global proportions and trends rapidly so that they can have a better understanding of the world as a whole. But we are not expecting them to invest time and interest because we don't think they have it. But we think if we can introduce them most likely it will be useful for them and hopefully they would also feel that it is pretty interesting because when it comes to uh, when we think about it the subjects we talk about I mean it's life and death and sex but it's in statistical terms so they get pretty boring <laughs> but I mean it can't get much more interesting than that it's the basics of all All drama you see is around those terms. But when we see overly dramatic information, we I mean, we have these Hollywood productions with all these enormous action scenes that stick, sticks in our brains. And we have the media, the news media, who shows us all dramatic things that happens around us. It's very hard to keep a fact-based Uh, worldview that is reasonable because we have fragments that stick with us that are very far from statistically relevant. <laughs> so, I mean, it's all about trying to buy ourselves a little bit of time to get into the brains of people where when they actually prefer to consume Netflix uh, rather than, than hearing something more about the global development, right? Yeah. It's um, it's a it's a challenge when we're fed so much drama to to keep us factful. Yeah, and, it uh, is hard. I'm curious. I think that was a perfect note to end on. Actually, I mean that was a beautiful summary of of our goals and reaching the people who actually aren't even interested, but believing that it will be useful to them uh, if they actually if the information does reach them in the end. Yeah, and I I think that is also what what is uh, that's that's the whole fun. I think. Because if we talk to people who are overly interested already, 
I think that can be a waste of time because they they could spend a Saturday evening reading a very serious journal, you know, <laughs> mm. an academic journal about the topic and d- dive into details. But they, if they do that in a certain topic, then they will be ignorant in topics around that. So they will not have the same time to invest in, in other topics. So we have to give them the overview about the rest anyways. So I am, um, it's, it's a pretty interesting field, I think. <laughs> Frustrating, yeah. but fun. And it's important to have some fun. Yeah. Thank you, Anna, for spending the time with us today. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. So listening back to the interview, what I thought uh, was interesting was how when I tried to give praise to Anna, uh, it felt like she was being more of a realist, uh, sort of like you, James, uh, in, in, in saying that there is so much left to do. Uh, so, I mean, she, it doesn't stop here. They've done, I mean, in my eyes, quite a lot, but I understand where she's coming from because the more she learns, the more she learns, of course, that there is to do. Uh, and, and of course, that obviously feels daunting. Uh, and as she says, they're a small nonprofit uh, working on, on these huge tasks. I suppose when it boils down to it, the, the gap mind, the questions that they pose um, and question people all the time, um, there's still a lot of people getting those questions wrong. So I, I understand yeah. that if they're not noticing a massive change of how people perceive the world and, have a, and how many people have changed mm-hmm. to having a, a fact-based outlook on the world, then, yeah, there's a, you know, they're only at the beginning of the hill, or we are only at the beginning of this journey. Mm. At the same time, I mean, the people you and I talk to a lot, and I, I believe a lot of listeners to the show, are so aware of, of what we have to do with regards to paying attention to the facts around us. And being able to convey those in the best possible manner because that is what we do as designers. We convey information to other people in the best possible way. And of course, just being aware of the dangers, I think that was uh, um, really good how she brought up that uh, a visualization that is wrong but good is hard to get rid of, which means that we have a challenge there in that if we visualize something that is really hugely successful but realize later on that it's 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 not conveying the correct information, then it's actually hard to walk. And this back. is something that we've known for you know mm-hmm. eons that when you produce um, well dramatic stories, dramatic news exactly mm-hmm. like um, they talk about in factfulness and what Anna said about as well that if you create something dramatic, mm-hmm. then it gets attention and then the drama is what you remember. When that is then fact checked and proved to be incorrect the um, retraction never gets as much, if it's even retracted, it never gets the momentum of the original piece. So people right. will carry that incorrect information with them for for a long, long time, possibly even a generation or two, depending on what it is that's been pushed out there incorrectly. Yeah. And that ties in well what she, what the point she's making about she doesn't want to reach the people who are al- already are passionate, who already are interested. She wants to reach the uninterested because those are the people who won't go back 
and read the corrections and understand that what they read before was perhaps wrong, but instead will just go forward and keep repeating the same uh, mm. misstatements, really. Listeners to this show, um, regular long-term listeners, um, will know that I am not one who finishes books a huge amount of the time. I'm an expert at starting, but not fantastic at finishing. I can say, though, mm. factfulness I have actually completely read. And, oh, thank you. <laughs> and I'm going to read it again. It's it's such mm. an important read. And I'm going to go as far as say that I think that every single child should read this before they finish their education, their formal education. Yeah, I'll definitely agree with you. Yeah. It's just too important. To, the whole thing about being able to understand how to fact check stuff, or basically how to how to be factful with with information and all the information that's that's thrown at us constantly. Uh, it's it's a mm. fundamental thing we need to be better at, which means we have to start with the well, we have to make sure the children get their heads around it. Yeah, we need to understand the problem because it's it's both about us designers designing in a better way, perhaps sometimes, but it's also as humans being resilient to all the all that information being thrown at us and understanding understanding what the information really is truly saying. Because we can't we can't stop um incorrect facts. Sorry not incorrect facts, what's that about? Um, falsehoods. We can't we can't stop things that aren't mm. true getting propagated, circulated and pushed. That's gonna mm. happen. Um but we can be better at understanding and learning when they aren't true and maybe how we can find out what really is true. Mm. And at the same time, I can't shake this idea that sometimes it comes down to what I felt that Anna is doing a lot with with, uh, with Dollar Street is that she's including the people who are the subjects of the data within the data. Uh, so for me, that's a step towards listening to the people you are trying to make data out of. Uh, so I'm looking at uh, the way that you and I s often talk about how extremely, extremely valuable it is to draw on a whiteboard, but draw on a whiteboard together. Like you draw a line uh, when you're in a client meeting, you draw a line, but then you hand over the pen to the client. We are handing over the pen to people so that they can explain their worldview to us. And that will help us as designers explain everyone's worldview better. A little bit of empathy and, and humility. Yeah, humility is probably a good way to look at it as well. Now, for recommended listening this time, I've, I've, pill, I've pulled out one that's reasonably new, not that many months old, but it, it felt relevant. Um, what I've chosen this time is Figure It Out, which was episode 242 um, with Stephen Anderson and Carl Fast. Do you understand why I think it's relevant, Pat? Well, it, it, yeah, I think so. I mean, it's also about how we uh, explain things, how, <laughs> well, how we figure things out, how we help ourselves and others uh, try out new models of thinking to better explain the world. Mm. And I also like the whole thing, we figure it out we're talking about cognition and how that is beyond our mind. You know, we, we use props, we use things, visualizations as part of our understanding. Exactly. And that for me is is a lot of what Gapminder and and Hans Rosling and Anna and Ola have been about is extending our cognition, our understanding, our minds mm. 
into the visual visualizations in the world, factfulness world. Something else I thought might be useful, worthy to mention, is that we've got, you know, because we've got listeners in 197 countries and territories around the world, Dollar Street might need or benefit from pictures from your home or in your country. And there's a form you can fill in and instructions on Dollar Street's website that tells you how you can go about doing that. We'll add the links to both the form and the instructions to the show notes. Also, a quick reminder, you can contribute to funding UX Podcast by visiting uxpodcast.com slash support. And just as valuable, if not more so, is by volunteering to help us with transcripts and publishing. Just email us or get in touch, however you fancy, and raise your hand. Remember to keep moving. See you on the other side. Why did we do them like that? <laughs> it's, it's 250 episodes and we're kind of playing around with our outros. It's just wrong. <laughs> Did you know, James, that I once tried to become a professional fisherman? No, I didn't. Not how you became a, tried to become a professional fisherman. Yeah, I discovered I couldn't live on my net income. Oh. <laughs>